This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. This week, what did you do for your Christmas vacation? If you're Ashley Parker, Capitol Hill correspondent for the New York Times, you went on a busman's holiday, but not a bad one, to Honolulu to cover the most languid of Barack Obama events, the presidential vacation. We'll get a full report on a vacation without waves, though Ashley reported she found some on some surfing lessons in a moment. Then it's 1964, the year the Beatles came to America, Cassius Clay became Muhammad Ali, and three civil rights workers were murdered in Mississippi. It was a year when Berkeley students rose up in protest, African Americans fought back against injustice in Harlem, and Barry Goldwater's conservative revolution took over the Republican Party. The magnificent PBS series The American Experience tackles this pivotal year, now 50 years in the rearview mirror, next Tuesday at 8 p.m. At the bottom of the hour, we'll be joined by Stephen Ives, the director of so many PBS masterworks, to talk about his latest film, 1964. But first, Ashley Parker, Capitol Hill correspondent of The New York Times, just fresh back from the presidential vacation in Hawaii. Welcome back again, Ashley, to Polyoptics. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, First, I have to ask, because this week uh, we thought we'd sort of get back to work slowly. Uh, Here we have this news conference about two hours in length from Governor Chris Christie this week. I want to hear just a little bit of that conference and then have you tell me what they're saying back at the Bureau about it. Sure. I am heartbroken that someone who I permitted to be in that circle of trust for the last five years betrayed my trust. I would never have come out here four or five weeks ago and made a joke about these lane closures if I had ever had an inkling that anyone on my staff would have been so stupid but to be involved and then so deceitful as to dis- just to not disclose the information of their involvement to me when directly asked by their superior. And those questions were not asked, by the way, just once. They were asked repeatedly. An amazing performance, Ashley Parker. What did you make of it? Well, first you should know that our entire, the, the D.C. Bureau, we were all waiting for this press conference to begin. And then Everyone was sort of standing there around the TVs just watching to see uh, what would happen. So it, w- it was of interest. Um, and I think, you know, it was interesting to see. I, I have to confess we actually did, most of us did not watch the entire press conference because it went on for so long and we had a meeting that started about an hour and a half through. <laughs> so, so we had to leave. But, you know, one thing we were debating afterwards was just sort of like, do you think this is true? Do you think you really and, I mean, he, he very unequivocally said he didn't have any knowledge of this. Um, it was his staff behaving badly, but the buck stops with him. And there was sort of an open question, like, is that all there is to it? Is another shoe going to drop? Did he maybe know a little bit? Is he uh, sort of misleading people? Or did he really not know? And, and what does that mean? You know, is, is that bad? Does that mean he's a bad manager? Um, does that mean he's created sort of a culture while he might have not known, but they're taking their cues from the top where bullying and sort of retribution and, and pettiness is typical for the office. So those are kind of the questions everyone was wondering after the press conference. Yeah, I, I struggled with it. I mean, it was two, uh, two things. One, 
a very red line that he drew. He did not know about it until 10 minutes of 9 on Wednesday. And so if anything comes out about it that's any different than that, he is going to have a very difficult time answering that. And the other thing, so I think if it's true, then he buys himself off on this. The second thing that he might buy himself off on is that he basically stood there and took every question, right? Right. So as a as a moment of political performance, Ashley, I think uh, he made a big gamble today and it might pay off, but um, uh, cert- and he, he cauterized the wound quickly enough. Anything else they're saying in the Bureau about what they saw? I mean, one thing that was funny that some people sort of caught was when he said... Um, that, you know, he's, he's not a focus group tested, blow-dried candidate. And then he kind of stopped himself and said, governor. And so it was sort of wondering, was that a Freudian slip? Was he already thinking ahead to being a presidential candidate in 2016? <laughs> or to be fair, he just was a candidate um, for re-election. So it, it could have gone either way. But that was sort of a, a word choice people uh, caught on. But again, you know, if you thought about the guy you used to follow, Mitt Romney, would act, would actually stand there and take public questions for an hour 45 or two hours... That was a phenomenal uh, performance. I mean, it was a performance. That was one other thing people are talking about. I mean, whether you believed him or didn't believe him or what you thought or what the ramifications will be, just sort of his political theater and and sheer performance, it it was amazing to watch. Yeah, he didn't break. He smiled a lot. He was able to crack the the room up a little bit. Uh, So I was, um, I, I, I went into the day wondering whether, you know, he would be able to, whether, as you said, there would be any more shoe to drop or he would be able to get through it without getting angry. He pretty much was able to do that after an hour 45. Yeah, I mean, I guess when you are trying to prove that you are not a bully and have not created a culture of bullying, getting angry would be very self-defeating. <laughs> That's probably the one thing he had to avoid in that press conference. So uh, switching the topics back to D.C., Ashley, you were back to work this week after your busman's holiday, which I want to spend some good amount of time on. (laughs) But I want to hear a little bit of Senator Rubio's speech from earlier this week and then have you talk me through the process of writing your setup piece. Until at least a few decades ago, our economy proved sufficiently dynamic and innovative to replace old jobs with new ones. But that hasn't been happening in recent years. Social factors also play a major role in denying equal opportunity. The truth is that the greatest tool to lift people, to lift children and families from poverty, is one that decreases the probability of child poverty by 82%. But it isn't a government program. It's called marriage. Ashley Parker, New York Times, you and Annie Lowry wrote a piece setting up that speech, Republicans moved to reclaim poverty-fighting mantle. Uh, Take us through the process of writing the quintessential uh, congressional setup piece. You obviously scored an interview with Senator Rubio, and it it frames exactly what he was going to say later at the uh, the think tank. Yeah, I mean, and and to be clear, some of these... So it's funny, we all sort of come back from vacation or the holidays, and then suddenly it just seems like all of these Republicans are alighting on the issue of poverty. Um, And to be clear, some of them have been speaking about this for a while, right? Like Paul Ryan apparently, according to what we've read, got in a big fight with the Romney campaign because he wanted to be able to visit more inner city areas. And Senator Mike Lee of Utah gave a speech on poverty a couple weeks ago um, or months ago at uh, Heritage. So it's not that they haven't been talking about it. When sort of Paul Ryan, a a 2016 uh, 
potential is talking about it, and then suddenly Marco Rubio is giving a speech. It just seemed like something was happening with Republicans trying to claim the mantle of, of poverty, or rather anti-poverty, and we were sort of curious to see not only why suddenly now and, and what was their message, but also what are their actual proposals. So you're out with this on January 8th. I don't know when your flight landed from Hawaii, but when do you start thinking about it and putting this together, and who who helps you with where the Republicans are, are thinking? I mean, you know, the, the Republicans themselves were very helpful for this story because it's the 50th anniversary of uh, LBJ's war on poverty, yep. um, and they had a message they wanted to get out, right? Rubio was giving a speech in the LBJ room in the Capitol, which I believe was the room that used to be uh, his office there. So they, you know, we, our story is before some of these speeches, so obviously they weren't going to tell us what exactly was in the speech, but, you know, Senator Rubio and others, they want to, they think they have a really good program. They think they're dealing not just with the um, inequality of income, but inequality of opportunity, and they were sort of happy to hop on the phone and say, look, here's what I think. I think we should return some of these programs to the states. I think the states could handle the money in a more flexible way. I think we should have more vocational training. And here's the problem with just saying we want to raise the minimum wage. I actually want to give people the skills that will allow them to to get jobs that aren't just at the minimum wage, but is two or three times the minimum wage. So they were more than happy to an extent to talk about their proposals. Did you actually go to Rubio's speech? I did. And uh, you, you followed Romney and the other Republicans so much in 2012. How did he stack up and did he give off the patina of a 2016 candidate? Yeah, I think, you know, I think one of the things uh, people want to see, not just from 26 candidates, but certainly even from this current Congress uh, on both the Democratic and the Republican side are sort of people who have ideas and legislative proposals and they're willing to stand behind them and, and stick with them and propose something that isn't going to be popular with all sectors. Um, what Rubio proposed seems like it will be pretty popular with, with a lot of Republicans, right? It's a, it's a smaller government approach, um, so it's not particularly controversial with his base, but, you know, a lot of Democrats are, are going to hit him on it and, and the Republicans in general. So, so, yeah, I think that's what people are looking for, not just in a 2016 nominee, but in a and a politician, and a leader, and a, and a candidate, and a legislator. So now let's uh, pivot, if you want, to back to your busman's holiday and the way Ashley Parker spent her Christmas vacation. <laughs> uh, I want to hear a little bit of ITN in its quintessential British way, setting up the Obama arrival at Hickam Air Force Base. Even one of the most powerful men in the world gets time off over Christmas. President Barack Obama has touched down in his birthplace of Hawaii with his family, ready to begin his two-week holiday. The family's two dogs, Sonny and Bo, also join them aboard Air Force One. The break comes at the end of a challenging year for the president, who admits he had ups and downs in 2013, of which some of the downs included a botched healthcare rollout and stalled legislative initiatives. However, Obama was all smiles as he greeted locals on the tarmac in Honolulu to wish them a Merry Christmas. Ashley Parker, in a prior generation, I would be the... Uh, the White House aide working with John Broder and Todd Purdom on a Clinton vacation. How did you score this gig uh, for the Times? Yeah, it's funny because we have four um, four White House reporters, so for for me to go was a slightly unlikely choice. Um, but basically, you know, these these trips to Hawaii is 
it's a great location, certainly, but there's also some logistical challenges involved. Our, you know, all of our White House reporters have, have families and, and have other concerns, and I, I don't quite know exactly what happened, but I think at the end of the day, my editors were suddenly like, hey, you're half Jewish and not married. Like, you're, <laughs> you know, you're virtually a, like a one person who can pick up and go to Hawaii for two weeks, and there's not many complications, right? I don't have to make arrangements for my kids or pay to fly them out. It's just kind of me, so... Uh, were you out on Air Force One pool or press charter or fly out commercially yourself? There, so there were, interestingly, there was actually, there was no press charter. It was just um, Air Force One one because it was a very small group of print reporters. I'm told that previous years uh, more print reporters used to go, but as I think publications are scaling back and trying to cut costs, uh, people are wondering, you know, how much value is there in sending people, a, a reporter for two weeks uh, to a vacation in Hawaii where they're may not be much news. So we all flew out on Air Force One, flew out and flew back. And um, what what preparation did you get to cover the presidential vacation? Did you go back and read sort of the quintessential president vacates stories that both have happened to Clinton, Bush, and, and Obama? Did you read up how these stories usually flow? Yeah, it was funny. When I found out I was going, I was actually getting ready to leave for a two-week trip to Southeast Asia, just a long planned vacation. Um, I was asked to do it when I was boarding a flight to Tokyo. So when I got back from that trip, I sort of had two days before I had to get on Air Force One and fly to Hawaii. And so in that time, I went on Nexus. And as you pointed out, I printed out basically every story that's been written about presidential vacations and (laughs) what's happened and how they've gone. And one interesting thing that I sort of knew, but I was surprised to find it held true in every single year with President Obama, was that this was the first year that his vacation was not cut short, right. um, delayed, or interrupted in the middle by news, legislation, um, a Christmas Day bomber. This was actually the closest he's come to a, a vacation. And, and one of your headlines from January 4th, for Obama, a, ra- a real and rare vacation in Hawaii. I want to hear a little bit of uh, his visit to see the troops on Christmas. Michelle and I know that we would not enjoy the freedoms we do if it weren't for the incredible dedication and professionalism and work that you do. The least we can do is just let you all know that uh, we're grateful to you. That base visit is now tradition for the president as part of his yearly getaway. That's the Marine Corps base Kaneohe Bay, Hawaii. Ashley Parker, I thought you did a lot of work on this vacation, except the note that you put in that you might have got in a surfing lesson or two. I thought I did a lot of work on this vacation, too. (laughs) So I counted, by rough count, 28 pool reports that you filed and any number of stories that I want to get into. So talk about those two different duties, the pooler and trying to write some good pieces for the paper. Sure. So, I mean, at its most basic level, the protective pool is a group of reporters who sort of goes wherever the president goes, um, you know, just in case there's an emergency or something happens and there just needs to be a group of people, uh, reporters, where the president is. But as people probably largely know by now, unfortunately, we don't get a lot of access to what the president is actually doing. He doesn't take you in a golf cart. Not once, no matter how nicely we ask. So we'll all load into the pool van. He'll go play golf. We'll drive to the golf course, and then instead of seeing him playing golf, we'll sit in the food court on the military base uh, waiting for his golf game to end. Um, so that part is, is frustrating, not just because of sort of the boredom and being cramped in a pool, but really because there's very little journalism being committed, right? I mean, you're, you're sort of there, but you're getting very little access all day long, which is frustrating to, to journalists who's, who, who want access, who want to see stuff, who want actual news. So what's the what? How many print reporters were there? What was the rotation? How many days did you have to do? Uh, there were four print reporters. Um, so we were sort of every fourth day. 
And uh, when you, like, I, as the White House guy, I've been sitting with you at the food court for six hours. Uh, <laughs> wh- what was this food court as opposed to any other food court? Did you get anything done? Did you read a book? Did you watch movies? What did you do? Yeah, you know, the print the print reporters actually did not have it nearly as bad as some of the um, the photographers. There was a photographer from the Associated Press who was in the pool van every single day um, for these 15 days. And, you know, there are mornings that start at... It, it's a long day. Um, there are mornings that start at, you know, 5 a.m. and end at, at 11 p.m. And for the photographers especially, there were very few opportunities to actually make photos, so it wasn't like they were seeing a lot of stuff to shoot. Um, so I know one photographer sort of by the end of the trip had figured out that she could simultaneously listen to books on audio tape and do jigsaw puzzles on her iPad, and it, <laughs> it was two different spheres of her brain, and, and that was a good way for her to pass the time. <laughs> That's awesome. And and did you eat at the food court or bring your own stuff in? Um, we we ate at we I mean we ate at the food court uh, or they would get food fresh. For the print reporters, actually, we were often, as you pointed out, just because we weren't seeing the president doesn't mean there's not stories to do. So a lot of times, I can only speak for myself, but I assume it's the same for others. While we're at the food court, we're working on on the stories that you saw in the paper. Um, so let's talk about one of those. I want to hear a little bit from KTV, this interview with Robert Perkinson, who is so excited about trying to bring <laughs> a part of the Obama library to Honolulu. We think both cities bring advantages to the table, but Hawaii's his hometown. This would provide him a base of operations to spend more time in the islands. We've got a big visitor industry and a global outlook. Um, it's a good place to take on big problems, and mm-hmm. we think a site here looks outward to the world and forward to the future. Ashley Parker, Robert Perkins, an energetic guy, seems like, from some of those TV clips. Yeah, he he is a relentless optimist, and, and what's funny is even he and even Hawaii, they're sort of playing an underdog's game in their pitch to get the presidential library. Their sort of attitude is, yeah, of course, and so by presidential library, there's the library and there's the archives, but there's also sort of the Clinton model is what a lot of people look to, right. where he has his library um, in Little Rock, uh, I believe, and then he has his foundation and his global initiative in, in New York. So already Hawaii is sort of saying, we don't expect everything, right? We don't even necessarily expect a library, but maybe we could get a center or maybe we could get a foundation. Um, and so th- they themselves are saying they're an underdog. So I kind of went into that story thinking, you know, Hawaii's long shot underdog bid. But when you talk to Robert, he he makes uh, a very compelling pitch, both from the actual facts he's bringing to the table and just to sort of his relentless optimism. Yeah, this was a problem, but but then we have this maybe solution, and this sort of seems like a problem, but we're trying to turn it to an advantage. And yeah, people might mention this, but we've actually already thought of this. I mean, they're working really, really hard. <laughs> and was this a story you thought of in advance, or you figured out on the ground? Uh, sort of figured out on the ground. How did it come to you? There were, I mean, other people, there have been other stories about the library in, in Hawaii, certainly, um, and there had just been a lot of, uh, the, I think, the AP wrote a story, but there's also been a lot of fervor just around the library in general. Jason Horowitz had written right. a story right before we left for our paper that was more about Chicago's bid and sort of internal palace intrigue about exactly. what, what will Valerie Jarrett do or not do. But as part of that, it kind of mentioned, you know, Chicago's this big front runner, but, you know, other places are making bids, including Hawaii, including Columbia, where he went to college for a few years. So, you know, from Hawaii is sort of a logical place to see what exactly their bid was. And, you know, on the Clinton level, Clinton gets back to Little Rock a lot, uses that building a lot. It Little Rock needs that tourism income from that uh, from the library and, and what it represents that Little Rock does not have a lot of other things going on. But Clinton spends, and Mrs. Clinton spend most of their time in New York City. And if you think about it, 
you know, a lot of the business of a foundation and a center can be done in Chicago, but Honolulu, with its Asia-facing location, could be a great place for an event space and a museum that celebrates this this unique president. And, and part of that was their pitch. And even in terms of a place that sells, like a library that celebrates the president, they think it, they don't necessarily, you know, one argument for Chicago is that it is easier for people on the mainland to get to Chicago than it is to get to Hawaii. Um, but sort of the core of their pitch is that, yes, I mean, if you've ever looked at Hawaii on a map, I don't know how many people realize this, but Hawaii is almost equidistant, not quite, but it is nearly as far from California as it is from Japan. Yeah. Um, and you sort of see it on maps of just the U.S., it's sometimes placed as if, as if it's just off the coast of California. <laughs> but, I mean, Hawaii really is sort of in in the Pacific, near near Asia. And so they think that for a center, especially for sort of this new Asian century, um, a lot of the outreach, uh, Robert told me, you know, look, Hawaii is basically equidistant between these major economic capitals. You, you know, you can get to New York, but you can also get to Tokyo and you can get to Beijing. And if the Obama administration cares as much as they say they do about our relationship with Japan and, and China and these new emerging global competitors and economies and potential allies and potential threats, then Hawaii is a perfect window uh, for a center like that. And I'd also point out that there's, uh, there's an east-west center already uh, on Hawaii that I think was started, LBJ started kind of when the Vietnam War was happening, and, and the idea then was to do outreach to this region again. So there is sort of a bit of a history and a tradition of Hawaii being a good outreach place to that region. And, and to that region, specifically the Japanese, Ashley Parker, you got very far off the beat, I thought, <laughs> with your January 1st article, Hawaii Tourists Revel in Sun, Surf, and Semi-Automatics. What was that story all about? Yeah, that that was actually a very fun story to do. Um, my colleague who had gone on this trip last year had had mentioned to me that when you're walking, which I immediately saw when I landed as well, that when you're walking along sort of the boardwalk or the sidewalk in Waikiki Beach, which is kind of the most touristy area on Oahu, um, there are all these gun clubs um, and all these men standing outside, handing out flyers, wearing poster boards, advertising gun clubs, and they're advertising geared towards a Japanese demographic. Their signs are in English and Japanese. The women who are holding the guns are, are Japanese women. Um, and it turns out when you look into it that Japan has very, very, very restrictive gun laws. Um, it's very hard to own a gun in Japan, and you have to sort of clear all of these rigorous background checks, and there's some guns that you can't even own. And, and while, to be clear, Hawaii actually does have among some of the more restrictive gun laws within the United States, <laughs> Uh, it's not at all restrictive compared to Japan. So you have all these tourists who have seen guns on TV and, and in cartoons, and then they come to Hawaii, and they can actually go to these gun clubs and, and shoot guns. And so that's what a lot of Japanese tourists do, or one of the things they do. So as part of your reporting, did you get an experiential uh, taste of this? So I went to a lot of the gun clubs, I, I uh, mainly to sort of interview people. Um, I would actually wanted to go back and, and shoot a gun just because it, seemed like a, a touristy thing to do in Hawaii, um, but I, I never got a chance. Well, I, one thing that I think you did get a chance to do, at least you alluded to this in one of your stories, is uh, you took up some surfing. How did that go? Um, you know, it went okay. I, I told the instructor that, you know, I said, you know, it's not that hard actually to get, and to be clear, these were like non-existent waves, but I said, you know, it's not that hard to get on the, up on the board. The hardest part for me is the paddling. And he kind of looked at me and said, well, paddling's 90% of surfing. <laughs> so 
So I have a long way to go. <laughs> um, and the pool reporters every night you included referenced the various restaurants that the Obamas went to uh, while they were uh, dining. Did you get to dine in the same establishment? Were you nearby? What's your cuisine analysis of <laughs> Honolulu right now? Um, so we, while the Obamas were dining, if we were pool, we did not get to dine at the same restaurant. We often went to a nearby restaurant, um, so we could be close to them, but obviously not not on top of them. Um, although I do know a lot of the places the Obamas went are good restaurants, so I think a lot of reporters took advantage of it and tried them kind of on their own time. In Hawaii, I thought the food in Hawaii was great. They, uh, they had some great sushi and ramen and some very good uh, Asian food. And back in D.C., you seem to be taking your hand a little bit of travel writing, too, your hotel review of the Graham Hotel. Are you, is, is, is food writing and, or, or uh, travel writing in your future? Tra- travel writing is always fun when you can do it. So I think all reporters are always trying to think of what's the travel piece angle we can, we can include. Were you surprised to hear, was it a surprise to the pool to hear that Michelle Obama would not be accompanying her, president, her, her husband back to Washington? <laughs> Yeah, it was a huge surprise, actually. There were a couple of surprising things because they had just in the pool report, I don't know if you know, they had just gone on a hike and it, the hike 15 had just, minute hike. The hike had just last 15 minutes, which had sort of raised some eyebrows. What kind of a hike is that? It's a very aerobic hike, but. Um, and then, sort of a day later, we found out, uh, right when we were heading back, that Michelle was not uh, heading back with them. But it does sound like he gave her a very good birthday gift. He spends a lot of time with Marvin on the golf course. <laughs> yeah. I mean, That guy spends six hours a day away from family. Um, (laughs) Coming back to D.C., Ashley Parker, and thinking both forward to 2016 and back a little bit to where we first met you as uh, the embed uh, correspondent for The New York Times with the Romney campaign. Very interesting development, as we heard over the break, that there would be this new documentary on Netflix January 24th called Mitt by Greg Whiteley. I want to hear just a little clip from the trailer. And if you don't win, we'll still love you. Uh, the, <laughs> the country may think of you as a laughing stock, and we'll know the truth. And that's okay. This is a very different setting than any of the debates we've held so far. A dining room conversation is among members of the family. These are all people competing for the same job. How in the world do we find these things out on the day of the debate? He hates to disappoint. Are you going to iron dining seriously? <laughs> Ouch. This may not end well. A recent poll said that 43% of Americans are not even sure who you are. The flipping Mormon. (laughs) How did you feel on the stage? I was dying. I would not want to do this again. It's too much. I have looked, by the way, at what happens to anybody in this country who loses as the nominee of their party. They become a loser for life, all right? They're done. All right, that's it's over. Ashley Parker, Mitt Romney was famous in his campaign for being a cloistered candidate, bringing no end of frustration, I think, to you and others who hope to get some access. This is a, seems to be a very human portrait of the guy. Yeah, I mean, we've all only seen that trailer, but I think one thing it reinforced for us that had been striking throughout the whole campaign and was, well, first I should say that when, when I was in Hawaii, I heard from some of the Obama staffers who had just seen the trailer as well, sort of like, wow, I was really blown away by that trailer. You almost felt bad for him. You know, he, he seemed really human, and it was so interesting to see. And one of the things we had sort of said all campaign was, you never got to see that side of Romney. And as you see in the documentary, it's a, and as we sometimes saw in the campaign and off-the-record interviews that we could never put into print or reflect in our stories because of the campaign's insistence they were off-the-record, he, he has 
very human, and he does have some compelling sides that voters that voters probably should have learned about and might have benefited him had they put that more on display. Um, so I think you you see that in the film, but we didn't see a lot of that in the campaign. Was Whiteley conspicuous as a filmmaker? Did you know he was working on this? No, that was actually another question. Like sort of all the reporters who had covered Romney were, were kind of like, where where was this guy? Because we were there all the time and we never saw him. Um, and so I don't really know my sense just from talking to people is that he was sort of more of a president in 2000 presence in 2008. Um, and he, he very well, I mean, we'll see when we see the film, he very well may have been in the crowds and stuff. I can tell you, he was certainly not in the bubble. He wasn't traveling on the bus with us and he wasn't traveling on the plane with us, but he clearly got the, the best access on election night. And one thing I thought was fascinating was that not only did he get good access on election night, but it would have been very easy for the Romney campaign once it became clear that he was losing and this was going to be a bad night and it was going to be an emotional night to just say to the filmmaker, you know, you need to leave now. And, and they didn't. It seems that whatever agreement they had made with him, they kind of they kind of honored. That's amazing. You, you and I will uh, will watch on January 24th. Maybe we'll get back together again and <laughs> a few other people from the Romney bus and compare some notes. Ashley Parker, just back from Hawaii, a huge trove of work while on a busman's holiday. And now back to her job on Capitol Hill. From the New York Times, Ashley Parker, thanks so much for joining us again on Polyoptics. Yeah, thanks for having me on. People of the United States. This is POTUS. And now, as promised at the top of the program, Stephen Ives, writer and director of The American Experience's latest 1964, premiering on a PBS station next Tuesday at 8. Check local listings. If your clicker has ever brought you to a PBS station, and I'm sure it has, you've seen Stephen's work before. A decade-long collaboration with Ken Burns results in such landmark series as The West, The Civil War, and Baseball, and his other American experience credits Lindbergh, Las Vegas, New Orleans, Kit Carson, Road to Memphis, Panama Canal, Custer's Last Stand, and the Grand Coulee Dam. I'm a, such a huge fan of the American experience. Had Barack Goodman on it last year. Welcome, Stephen, to Polyoptics. Thank you very much. Good to be with you, Josh. Uh, 1964, we know it's 50 years ago, but does every year get the American experience treatment? <laughs> no, but this year really is special. I mean, uh, it is uh, a moment that uh, defines a, an entire period of American history. I mean, I think it, 64 was really the earthquake that unleashed the tsunami that was the 1960s, and all of the ideas and themes that uh, seemed to play out through that tumultuous decade really did have their genesis in this crazy, amazing year. Fascinated always by the sort of the PBS creative process, asked Barack Goodman about this when he was given the assignment for Clinton. How do they dole out American experience assignments and how did it come to you? Well, we have had a long and incredibly rewarding experience with the folks at the American Experience at WGBH, and we talk a lot about different projects that we want to do. And uh, we had just it showed up on their radar, and uh, I had some conversations with Mark Samuels, the Amer- executive producer there, and I was really interested in this story because I'd never, you know, I was old enough to remember the Kennedy assassination, um, but not really the fallout that that came from it. And the more I got interested and looked at this moment, the more uh, it, intriguing it became. Because this is a moment when all the cracks in the the facade of America at that moment, the, the consensus that had ruled the country since the New Deal and World War II, begins to break apart. And 
in that in that kind of moment when the country seems to almost go from from black and white to color uh, is a, is a really profound transformation, and it just intrigued me, and I felt like I wanted to look more deeply into that story. So, what kind of team do you put together? What kind of a studio? And do you just walk into a network archive or the National Archives and say, "Give me all your stuff on 1964"? How do you begin to make sense of it? Well, for like anything else, there's a, just a gigantic fire hose of material that you have to c- grapple with, and these days it's all digital, a lot of it is, so it comes in in these gigantic uh, waves, and that's the big challenge we, we have to struggle with. I mean, my old friend Ken Burns used to say that documentary filmmaking was like making maple syrup, and in a way, it's true, you're just constantly trying to boil down and sift and separate all of these intriguing little threads and figure out how to weave something together. Um, but a lot of it is trying to sort of uh, also really craft a narrative that makes uh, a powerful story that is filled with interesting characters. And of course, 1964, the problem was not, you know, great characters, the problem was too many of them, uh, and, and how to possibly sift through them and not end up making a film that felt like a biography of Lyndon Johnson, for example, or a, a new film about the Vietnam War, but that was really a film that looked at this remarkable year and tried to understand why all these things came to fruition in that moment. Yeah, and as you view your film next week and you see uh, the Chiron or the graphic uh, on, uh, on your film, you say Rita Schwerner. Uh, it's just amazing how a remembrance 50 years later and the, the film that you captured 50 years ago to see the journey that this person has taken over five decades. Yeah, I mean, Rita Schwerner it was the wife of Mickey Schwerner, one of the three civil rights workers who was murdered during Freedom Summer in Mississippi uh, in that year. And um, we got in touch with her and it took a little convincing, but she agreed to participate. And we tried as much as we could to find people that actually lived through some of these experiences. And, of course, Rita was in the absolute heart of it and in, in the darkest, really, possible moment of, of the film. And, and uh, you know, what's so haunting is that there's this amazing footage of her as a very, very young woman trying to explain and deal with the the horror of realizing her husband has been murdered. And so when you can play back and forth between uh, moments that are separated by 50 years, there's something quite powerful going on. And that was a real privilege and, and, a, and kind of a fun, interesting aspect of, of making this film. She was a beautiful woman 50 years ago. She still is today. Yeah. She's, she has a tremendous quiet dignity about her. And uh, you understand when you meet her and talk to her why she could walk into the Oval Office and say to, and, and speak truth to power in a way to Lyndon Johnson that no one else was willing to do. Um, and, and, you know, it, it, she was so blunt when she talked to the president that, that it, she kind of irritated the press secretary. Uh, um, but uh, and he, I think he said, you know, you just don't talk to the president of the United States that way. And she said, well, I think I just did. Uh, and, uh, I mean, I love that about her. Yeah, she seemed to have, a, even 50 years later, a, a, a appreciation and uh, uh, relief that she was able to be so candid. Also, yeah. you know, you, you see the offerings in your film from Dave Dennis before you get the clip from 50 years ago of Dave, and you wonder why exactly is he one of your... Uh, interviewees, and yet when you see what he did 50 years ago, it's so powerful on film. 
Yeah, he was a great, you know, immensely brave and and committed activist in uh, the Congress of Racial Equality Corps, and he worked very closely with Bob Moses, uh, who was another sort of legendary part of the civil rights movement in the South and, and an organizer of Freedom Summer, and and his experiences are just, you know, overwhelming in, at times. Uh, I mean, it was one of the most emotional interviews I've ever done. I've done, been doing this for 20 years, and uh, and he totally surprised me with a story about what happened to him during the Harlem riots and um, some horrible violence that he witnessed. And, and it all comes back around uh, to him in in uh, the middle of a eulogy uh, in in uh, a church in Mississippi. So uh, that's another aspect of doing a, this kind of history. It's it's recent enough so that you can almost reach out and touch it, and uh, and it's a, a a wonderful moment when someone like that, who has been through such a, a trial, such a difficult and brave journey, um, gets a chance to sort of have their say about what it all has meant with a little bit of hindsight and a little bit of perspective after uh, after decades uh, removed from the, the event. Stephen Ives, let's go through a little bit of the year of 1964. We'll, we'll pick on some of the uh, moments that you feature in the film and, and you can talk about those moments and also as it related to your process of, of creatively writing the script, accessing the materials and putting it together. Begin with that moment in February the voice of Ed Hurley as the Beatles came to America. There are rumors around that this is Britain's revenge for the Boston Tea Party. 3,000 screaming teenagers are at New York's Kennedy Airport to greet, you guessed it, the Beatles. This rock and roll group has taken over as the kingpins of musical appreciation among the younger element. Some music critics call their harmony unmistakably diatonic. Others say it's pandiatomic. Parents say it's just plain pandemonium. Their first meeting with the American press brings forth an interview laced with quips and humor. You'd laugh, too, with a gross of $17 million last year. So, Stephen Ives, we have the newsreels in Ed Hurley's voice. How do you put a new spin on the Beatles' arrival in America? Oh, well, gosh, every time I hear Ed Hurley, I just have to smile. He's the master of overstatement. Uh, But um, it's a great great moment in American history, and what was so interesting was the way in which they represented not just a, a fresh uh, explosion of, of joyful music, but uh, a kind of trigger for a youthful generation, uh, the baby boom generation, truly, coming of age, um, and finally beginning to sort of break out of the barricades, those barricades that are holding back those screaming, fainting girls are literal barricades, but in many ways there were cultural barricades and social barricades that were stretched to the breaking point in 1964. And what's happening is that the Beatles are one of those moments when those barricades are breaking apart. And and that's a through line that we found throughout the entire year, that, that the, the sort of ascendancy of youth, uh, both uh, uh, male and female, uh, black and white, uh, uh, conservative and, and, and liberal, uh, is a central theme of what's happening during the year, where these people are standing up and taking control or 
demanding that they be heard. And it's going to become the, the generation that is going to convulse the decade uh, that follows. And uh, so it's a bit, you can see the beginnings of that moment when, uh, when the Beatles show up at Kennedy Airport. And then into, into February 25th, another example of a young man who demanded to be heard. Let's hear a little bit of Cassius Clay. Cassius, you've been going around saying that you're the resurrector of the fight game, the savior of boxing. Profit, everything. What do you think that boxing would be today if it wasn't, if you weren't around? Oh man, if it wasn't for, if it wasn't for me, they'd be doing good to get fifty dollars a ringside seat. I'd have raised the price up to two hundred and fifty dollars. What do you think? Listen, I've got people chartered airplanes, models from Chicago, New York, flying special charter jet planes in, champagne flights just to see the champ. Rich people from all over the world are flying in, and the chauffeurs are driving the Cadillacs down. This is the biggest thing in all history. Stephen Ives, great to hear uh, Muhammad Ali's voice again, now 70 and not hearing much from him anymore. Yeah, I mean, he was such a pivotal and important figure in this whole story. I mean, he has a critical moment. I mean, of course, he was a 7-to-1 underdog. Uh, All of his bluster was, I think, masking a certain level of terror. I mean, anyone who had to meet Sonny Liston had to take their life in their hands at that at that time. But um, the amazing thing was that um, Clay beat him, uh, and beat him handily. Uh, and um, after the fight, um, he says something incredibly revealing. He's very subdued, and a lot of the press corps, including Robert Lipsight, who appears in our film in such a great uh, yeah. way, um, was sort of disappointed that the sort of grandstanding uh, uh, guy who was always great copy was suddenly more kind of conventional. And, and he said, I don't have to be uh, what you want me to be. I'm free to be who I want. Yeah. And that's just, that, that is a, a sort of a message and a theme that sums up the entire year, that, that Clay was standing up and saying, I'm a new kind of African-American figure. I'm someone with a new consciousness. I'm not going to fit uh, white stereotypes of what you want a black man to be. And I'm charting my own course. And in so many ways, that's what the Beatles, um, the kids who were growing their hair long, were saying. As you get ready to premiere your film next week, it's such a fascinating example this week. I don't know whether it's a parallel or a corollary or an antithesis. Dennis Rodman in North Korea. Did, did Did that cross your mind at all in seeing that Rodman going totally against the grain of the United States uh, this week and making such a show of it? Uh, you know, I wish I could feel like Rodman had a fraction of the substance that uh, Cassius Clay did, but uh, I don't feel that way about him. I feel like he's just sort of an uh, aberrant grandstander, uh, and I don't, I don't, you know, I think he was, he's done some good things, he's broken down some barriers, he's made some important strides for people uh, in the league and out, but I don't treat him as literally to say it uh, as a heavyweight. You know, he's he's not uh, Cassius Clay to me. Uh, Stephen, the roles we talked about uh, the British coming to America. We've talked about uh, black and white a little bit so far. Also, the gender differences uh, and the appearances in your film of Phyllis Schlafly, uh, an amazing story when you actually understand how she began, and also your uh, exploration into Betty Friedan and the feminist mystique. I want to hear a little bit of a, of, a, of a newsreel at the time to talk about women's role in the household prior to Betty's book. The happy housewife heroine was a woman who existed purely through image. She was the American dream 
flawless and without worry. Young American women set aside their potential ambitions of education and careers and focused primarily on getting married and having children. This woman was hardly an individual, exacting her image to that of an advertisement in a magazine. She lived through her husband, her children, and was content in doing nothing but nurturing them and the place they lived. She could not work because that was her husband's place, and she would only be looked down upon. She was to take pride in her femininity, the feminine mystique, as it were. In the hearts of the housewives who sat at home every day. The clip, uh, an ode to Betty Friedan, not from Stephen Ives' film, Stephen, but it does set up this uh, contrast between Betty and Phyllis Schlafly that you bring home so powerfully in your film, the role of women in 1964. Well, I think that's what's interesting about Betty for Dan and the the impact of her book. She she tapped into something that was um, profound and and uh, hidden in many ways. The the utter discontent and uh, sense of alienation and entrapment that women, mostly um, white middle class women, felt at that time. Uh, the sense that they'd been given everything that they were supposed to want and they were still miserable. And, of course, it was because they weren't being allowed to develop themselves and explore themselves as human beings. They were being treated as a consumerist caricature of what uh, a person was. And, um, as Betty Friedan says in the film, it was all about a little mindless drudge whose only uh, joy in life was to get the kitchen floor sparkling white. Um, And I think the impact of that book was, was remarkable because it, it was another example of um, these long-standing, uh, rigid uh, parts of the kind of consensus that had ruled the country for for decades breaking down uh, and breaking down remarkably quickly. Um, and Schlafly, in her own way, was a. Um, uh, I think there's something uh, slightly uh, disingenuous about the way Phyllis has presented herself in that she has argued over the decades that she wants to be and that women should be conventional and have a more conventional role. And yet her own career... She's an entrepreneur. Uh, ...contradicts that. She has been a dynamic, uh, professional woman with a career and a high-flying, uh, high-profile life. Um, but at the same time, um, she was a part of what was known as, in a way, as Goldwater's Army, a passionate group of young, primarily young uh, conservatives who saw a need for a standard bearer, someone like Barry Goldwater, who wasn't a Me Too Republican like Nelson Rockefeller from New York, somebody who spoke to grassroots conservative values. And and she had a tremendous impact on on. Goldwater's rise, and on the growth of the conservative movement that that eventually followed him. Well, let's hear a little bit of uh, Senator Goldwater from the Cow Palace in San Francisco, his famous convention speech. Let our republicanism so focused and so dedicated not be made fuzzy and futile by unthinking and stupid labels. I would remind you that extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. Stephen, I've I've worked in presidential campaigns now for 25 years, going back to 1987 and 1988. And 
usually what happens is the candidates both come toward the center. They they try to become as appealing as possible to the broadest possible group of Americans. And Mitt Romney certainly paid the price for the video that said he might not be that way. But Barry Goldwater made no apologies, did he? No, he was just the worst candidate imaginable on some levels. He just but I love his authenticity. I love, in a way, Goldwater's determination to act, just to speak his mind, um, and he he did it at that moment. He he wanted to say that he was, in fact, a revolutionary, and that he was someone who was had broken down the the, the gates to the castle. And um, in many ways, he did. I mean, no one expected him to be accepting the nomination in San Francisco, and and yet he did it. And um, I think that. What's kind of interesting about Goldwater is that, of course, when he lost in, in a landslide against uh, LBJ, the pundits were so quick to write his obituary, um, and they completely overlooked the fact that this was a man who had, had you know, really sort of advanced policies that were pretty far outside the mainstream. He was a terrible candidate. He committed gaffes on a regular basis. He said things that weren't in, weren't politic. He wasn't afraid, as we just heard, to alienate his his uh, other members of the party. And yet, he got 40% of the vote, and 27 million people voted for Barry Goldwater. So, it, it you know, as Hodding Carter uh, says in our film, the only people who uh, were supposed to be dead, the problem was the people that were supposed to be dead didn't realize they were dead. The young conservatives were ready to just simply ramp it up for the next cycle. And that's exactly what happened. The imagery that you have of Goldwater is so fun. You have him at the in the back of a train. You have him uh, going down the street, looks like California, in a parade on horseback. The creative process, what happens when all that stuff on Goldwater comes in? Do you say, wow, this is fun stuff? Yeah, I mean, the thing that's so great about what we do is that characters um, like Barry Goldwater are are wonderful characters. They're they're larger than life on a lot of levels. They're they've been heavily uh chronicled. Um and you know, LBJ and Goldwater were just great figures. I mean, constantly s- sort of out there doing their thing and and I, you listen to them and they they almost sound like the kind of candidates we wish we could have today. You know, they are uh, to a great extent by today's standards, unmuzzled, uh, and they are simply uh, arguing, they're passionately arguing their vision of what the country ought to be. And and it, there's a lack of focus group uh, caution and uh, heavily scripted talking points with these guys. They're just, they're, LBJ is an irrepressible, instinctual, unstoppable politician. He can't not be LBJ and Goldwater is this ide- ideologue with a with a strong dis- distaste for polit- the process of politics in a way, but a deep passion for his convictions, and so they make a really interesting combination, and they sum up the kind of things that were really fundamentally forcing Americans into these profound choices in 1964, and I think that that's what you see that. This was a year of taking sides. This was a year of profound crossroads. And Americans were facing these stark choices. Are you in favor of civil rights or are you against civil rights? Are you embracing the counterculture that's growing or are you 
holding on to these traditional values? Are you uh, going to follow the feminist wave, or are you, not, are you not going to? I mean, these were big moments, and a lot of them came crowding into this one remarkable year. David McCullough's voice is so associated with the Civil War. You picked Oliver Platt as the voice of 1964 for a special reason or just because he's got great lungs? Well, I was a consulting producer on the Civil War series. One of the things I did was help record David's narration uh, with Ken, and, and uh, I always remember those sessions because David really is one of the great American voices. Um, Oliver is just a, a immensely talented actor and uh, deeply interested in the material, and he, and he thinks hard about what uh, you hand him, um, and he's unfailingly professional and and brings good ideas and great energy into a studio and has a terrific set of pipes so i mean he's a, he's an ideal narrator i think and he's he's become informally kind of a, a little bit of the voice of the american experience he's been doing a fair number of their films and so i i just think he's fantastic and uh i'm looking forward to having him narrate my next film as a matter of fact Looking forward to your film, 1964, next Tuesday on PBS at 8 p.m. Uh, it is 50 years ago, and yet the story stays with us still. Just to finish up, Stephen Ives, I want to hear a little bit last year, President Barack Obama at the APAC conference. I will never forget that I would not be standing here today if it weren't for the commitment that was made not only in the African-American community, but also in the Jewish-American community and the great social movements in our country's history. Jewish and African Americans have stood shoulder to shoulder. They took buses down south together. They marched together. They bled together. And Jewish Americans like Andrew Goodman and Michael Schwerner were willing to die alongside a black man, James Cheney, on behalf of freedom and on behalf of equality. Stephen Ives, so much of your film, 1964, focuses on the story of those three men and the, and the protests in Mississippi. What new do we learn through your film about what happened that summer? Well, I think what is remarkable about the disappearance of those three men and their ultimate murder is that, that the civil rights movement at that time had reached, uh, again, a fundamental crossroads. Uh, as Dave Dennis, one of the organizers of Freedom Summer, says, we were tired, and we felt we had to try and change things and try something new. We knew there was huge risks involved, and importing a thousand mostly white college-educated kids and sticking them in Mississippi was a huge gamble, and they knew it. Uh, they weren't setting out to create sacrificial lambs, uh, but when the three men were killed... That's kind of what they were, and the reaction proved everything that they had felt about the way America was seeing the civil rights movement. Uh, it, instead of being profiled on page 16A of the New York Times, uh, which is where usually the death of a black civil rights worker was placed, this was front-page news all the way across the, the nation. And I think that what it tells you is that... that Again, like so many other aspects of 1964, the fundamental decision had been reached that they had to sort of to ramp up and take the the struggle to another level. And uh, the fact that it was corresponding with the passage of the Civil Rights Act in Congress 
was in a way uh, the idea that Lyndon Johnson sensed this as well, that he could have tried to put the whole issue of civil rights off until the election was over in November, but he didn't. He pushed it straight through Congress, even though he knew that it carried with it enormous political risks uh, for him. And so, in a way, it was really indicative of the fact that that this was a year when these fundamental choices about the future of our country were made, and they were often fateful choices. But um, the country, I think, emerged immensely uh, better for them, with the with the pro- profound exception being um, Vietnam. The struggle brought home in a powerful two hours, 1964, for the American experience on PBS. Stephen Ives, the writer-director. Watch it next Tuesday night, 8 p.m. PBS. Check your local listings. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Josh. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed talking to you. Take care.